Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode <laughs> of Industry Standard with me, uh, Barry Katz. As I like to do, uh, I like to do a cold open to start these things, so I'm going to tell a little story. Right. My guest today, uh, Will uh, Keenan, I'm going to do sort of a story that's going to have like a, a sort of a relationship to what you do, because, uh, you know, obviously recently named the uh, president of Endemol Beyond USA, which is uh, their... A new uh, commitment to uh, the digital space. You can call me Mr. President. I will call you Mr. President. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to tell you a lot about Will in a second, but here's my story. So, I, in the year 2000, um, I'm about as familiar with the internet as I am with rocket science. I have no idea what's going on. Very few people know what's going on. But I represent a young client at the time who uh, just moved from Boston to L.A., who was living in a studio apartment um, off of Fountain Boulevard near La Cienega. Um, And uh, his name was Dane Cook, and he basically had nothing going on. He had done a couple of development deals, maybe a couple of late-night talk shows. And he was really making a name for himself in the clubs, doing great sets, and um, and sort of garnering uh, a little bit of a following. But when he went into the comedy clubs, he was really depressed because he would come back, he'd say, Barry, I just don't want to do these comedy clubs anymore. They're half full. You know, nobody cares about what I'm doing. And I just, I feel like the industry doesn't take me seriously. 
and I want to meet with you. I want to sit down with you and let's have dinner. And uh, we had dinner and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said to me, Barry, I figure out something that I think is going to be the next big thing. And I realized that no matter how hard you work or how hard I work, never going to do anything unless I create a noise that's so big that Hollywood will have to listen to me. And I figure out a way to do it, but I need your help. I said, well, what is it? What can I help you with? He said, I need to build a website. Uh, nobody has a website, uh, and I want to be the first comedy artist to have a website and a presence online that will my fans will be able to see. Right now, I have a website, but I just have pictures up. It's very static, and you know I'm getting a little bit of traffic, but nobody knows who I am. Secondly, what I'd like to do is I'm going to start editing little pieces of my comedy, and I'm going to put them up on Napster. And I'm, at the end of every little comedy piece that I put up, I'm going to do a little thing at the end that says DaneCook.com. And simultaneously, what I need you to do is I need you to figure out a way to help me build the best website that any musical artist or comedy artist has ever seen. He said, here's a contact of somebody. Call this guy. He's got the kind of website that I want. I said, what's the website that he's done? He said, the U.S. Army. <laughs> the U.S. Army website. Be all you can be. And I said, okay. So I called the guy up. And um, the guy says, uh, listen, uh, I'll do it for him. I don't care how many pages he wants. You can have one page. You can have ten pages. It doesn't matter. It's $25,000. Wow. Now, this is like in the year 2000, yeah. 2001. Yeah. And I'm like, $25,000? What's in the site? The body of Christ? I mean, come <laughs> on. I mean, it's just a, I mean, it's a young comedian. He's not going to pay that. <clears throat> I, I, I say this honestly. It was the hardest negotiation I think I've ever had in my life mm. because the guy did not budge. Wow. He did not move at all. I mean, couldn't get anything. It was $25,000, and that was it. Hmm. And I went to Dane. I said, listen, I, I feel bad, buddy. I can't negotiate this guy any lower. He's, he's just keeps hanging up on me, and I keep calling back. <laughs> on Barry Katz, ladies and gentlemen. And I've called back so many times, and he keeps hanging up, and wow. he just won't do it. And um, I said, how much do you have in your bank account? He says, that's all I have is $25,000. I said, well, you know, I guess, um, I don't know, maybe we should try some other options. And he said, no, no, I'm doing this website. I'm spending the $25,000. We'll make it. We'll make it work. I'll make it happen. I don't care. And he wrote a check for this website, and it was a website with a huge television and content, and he was... Uh, he was going forward and creating content and writing and blogs and video content and slowly people started coming and he left his notices on Napster and it was you know 5,000 then it was 10,000, 15,000 and it started going crazy and I asked him like why is this going so crazy and he said because Barry I made a commitment I'm gonna answer every email that every fan writes me 
and they will become my fans and it will be it will be instead of me it'll be we hmm. and we'll create something special together and we'll build something special and hopefully five years from now I'll be in a position where Hollywood will have to take notice of me right so then MySpace came around and he started utilizing that he said Barry we have to utilize MySpace let's get in touch and do this I said MySpace I said no comedians are on MySpace nobody knows me Barry it's gonna be the next big thing MySpace is gonna be it I wanna get on now tie in my website get everything together Napster's about to go down I gotta do this mm. gets on MySpace and by about 2005 2006 he has over 2.5 million friends on MySpace. His website is insanity. It's crazy. He's starting to sell out comedy clubs all over, no matter what he does. He can just sell any place. So around 2005, 2006 area, I asked Chris Albrecht if I could have a meeting with him. Um, about Dane Cook. Now, to give you the backstory on Chris Albrecht, he, I had reached out to him with Dave Chappelle about 10 years earlier. Um, he offered me everything, development deals, talk shows, you know, specials, comic relief. And unfortunately, through a series of events, Dave turned down the HBO deal after he flew us out first class and gave us the royal treatment and did a deal with Disney ABC where with a show called Buddies where it you know, went down in flames. And so Chris had held a grudge against me for probably 10 years oh. and wouldn't take a call, wouldn't do business with me, but I knew the talent rules and Dane was starting to make a name for himself. He'd done a few Lettermans, he stood, the buzz was starting to happen. And so I went on to talk to Chris, I pitched him the idea of Dane doing an hour special from Boston Garden. Uh, in front of 20,000 fans in the round. Wow. And Chris asked me, he said, well, Barry, uh, uh, what's the largest venue that Stane's done as a hard ticket? I said, uh, 500 seats, Comedy Connection, Boston. But he's from Boston. I know with what's happening, he's got all these friends on MySpace. This will happen, Chris. We'll make it happen. And as a leap of faith, I, I, an amazing executive that he was, he made the commitment to the special. He made a $1.7 million commitment to produce a special of Boston Garden with like 20 different cameras. We did two shows. We, we, we planned on two shows. Even though the largest show that Dane had ever done in Boston was 500 seats. But Dane had talked to me and he was such a, uh, he had such a vision. He was like, listen, it's going to happen, Barry. You sell it, you make it happen, and I will make it happen. And so we did the deal, and I remember the day we were going to put it up on sale. I remember Dane, uh, we were together, and um, what happened was, and it was revolutionary at the time, was called a pre-sale. Artists weren't doing pre-sales, but now it's, it's, everybody does it, but back then they don't. And he had his own password he had set up, and he was going to reach out to his fans before anybody in the public mm. had a chance to buy the tickets. Mm. And so I remember being with him at the time. We 
had it up on pre-sale, it was ready to go, I believe at 10 a.m. in the morning on a Monday. And on Sunday night, uh, he got on his account on MySpace, he opened up his laptop, and he pressed what seemed like one button and reached over 2.5 million people. The show went on pre-sale that Monday morning, and in less than two and a half days, the 19,000 seats of the first show had sold out. And unbelievably, I thought to myself, well, this is great, can't get any better than this. Two and a half days later, when it sold out, got the other show lined up, he pressed the button again, and in less than a week, he'd sold out the next show. And he became the first comedy artist in history to sell out two shows in one night wow. and an arena. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. I am very excited. Uh... Another episode here of Industry Standard. This is Barry Katz. Woo, Barry Katz! Yes, today, Will Keenan. Woo, Will Keenan! I'm actually saying How'd his... How'd you get Will Keenan? I'm actually saying his name before the introduction, because I'm going to tell you why I'm saying his name before the introduction. Because uh -oh. before I let you know what kind of person this is, I've done about 20 of these shows, okay? So I think I can safely say that uh, this is the most comfortable guest I've ever had on the show. <laughs> He's laying down on the couch. He's got on, his Barry. head on my lap. Just talk, talk nicely about I'm me, Barry. I'm massaging his shoulders. Tell me, tell He's me all about me, Barry. He's got his shoes off. 
Except um, he's, pretend what you were reading off of is in all caps, and let's just scream it to the people. It's like unbelievable. This guy is the size of like how I was when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> wow, first dig. <laughs> let's let's count how many digs. That was good. That was a good one. Yeah, but anyway. As long as you can make me laugh at the digs about me, I'll love you even more. But usually no one <laughs> makes fun of me in public. No one. Well, we are in public, and I, so anyway. So let me give you let me give you a proper introduction here. So Will recently was named president of Endemol Beyond USA, which is a digital division within the world's largest production company. Damn. Um, before re-entering the digital space. Um, he was vice president of vertical development as Actually, opposed to horizontal development. Yes. No, I was, I was really just the VP of cool. That's what, the, that's what they used to say. But he's like, has an interesting story, which we're going to talk about because not only was he involved in so many different channels that launched, uh, along the way and i mean you can't even imagine that this is like a who's who of youtube channels from bad lip reading to cute girl hairstyles to stubs i mean it's unbelievable juice rap news i mean it's just crazy uh rec room records adrian grenier's uh, record label uh margaret show's series in transition i mean they're just the very first web series i couldn't even imagine uh telling you about all these things i mean maker alone i believe there were 60 channels he was involved in launching 27 animated channels and so uh just an incredible incredible uh person in this world like probably one of the foremost experts in this world yet you look at this guy and he looks like he's like 16 years old yeah and and he started so i gotta wear ties people give me respect and he started as an actor as well which uh um he's going to talk about a lot in a, a number of cult films including uh the first recognized digital uh, uh, movie, I believe, was called Love God. You know, that, that makes me the world's first digital star. That's right. And he also uh, was in the first, uh, I believe, hermaphrodite serial killer movie <laughs> called Terra Firmer 97. That was, that was my choice, too. It was. I was so like, hey, let's make them a hermaphrodite. This guy has uh, is incredibly also uh, has the distinction of being a guy who uh, has taken one of the most legendary pictures ever. I believe it, uh, BuzzFeed 13, Snoop Dogg and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. So, so uh, I can and, add legendary photographer to my bio. And lastly, probably the only person in history to have successfully punked one of the greatest uh, comedy legends of our time, Jerry Lewis. There's so many unique things to talk about, and uh, this guy is amazing and an extraordinary man. So please welcome to the show... Will Keenan. So uh, I want to go back, as I always like to do in these podcasts, to the very beginning. So take me back to like whatever it is, a month, a year, a week before your first vision of ever being in anything having to do with this business. Where were you? What was happening in your life? How old were you? And what was the first thing that happened in your life that you said... I want to be in this crazy business. That's a really good question, and I, I've never been asked it, and I haven't thought about it in a long time. My mother says that uh, when I was born, I learned to run, not walk, and I was, I've was i been a stuntman, too. It's one of the things in there, so my trademark was getting hit by a car stunt, high falls, uh, so I've always been, she says, I've always been performing. Did you start as a stuntman because your mom dropped you on your head when you were a baby? <laughs> Barry Katz is gay. Will Keenan was dropped on his head as a baby. <laughs> Tweet that. Um, 
No, but I was thrown around a lot as a kid. I was little, okay, and I would get picked on, but I was tough. So, you know, bigger friends would pick me up and throw me up against the wall, and I'd be like, do it again! Um, but my mother says I've been performing since day one during, like, uh, Christmas holidays. She'd be like, Billy, do the gay voice for everybody. <laughs> I've been doing that voice since I was dick high, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and then, so it was just a part of... Uh, the performance thing was just a part that, of that. Whose dick is that that you were that high? That's uh... Barry Katz's dick is this no, high. No, no. I hope my 14-year-old nieces and nephews are not watching this. No, Jews, um, Jews and, and, and large uh, things like that go together like the words Kmart quality. That doesn't really Ron Jeremy happen. played my father in a movie. Really? He did? Okay. Yes, he did. All right. And so. Terra Firmer, the one you're talking about. Non-porn. It was, it was not an adult movie. Actually, I did two movies with him, not, uh, non-adult movies. So, been performing blah, blah, blah as a kid, and then... Uh, now, how old were you when you're, you're, you're being thrown against I mean, walls and... Uh, like two. A penis high? Two? Yeah, okay. I mean, and then making me do voices, so I was always performing, and then, uh, oh, then I became a child model. I almost forgot about this. So, in my little town, they were like, oh, he's, he's the... Uh, what town was that? Um, we, <laughs> um, let's just say 20 minutes outside Philadelphia. Got it. Uh, South New Jersey. <laughs> Got it. All right, fine. Township millionaires, yo. <laughs> All right, Washington Township, South New Jersey. And then at like age 12, I was, uh, you know, getting to leave school now they and said go you, up to New York. Now, you said you were a model. What yeah, did, you, yeah. did you pose for bowling trophies? What was happening? No, at the I, time? no I posed for everything, anything and everything. So, so you're five dollars an hour at that time, Barry. So you're a print model. I was a print model, yeah. So I did. Because uh, you are a handsome guy. I used to be. Now I'm a little trollish. And by the way, uh, I, I will say this, and I don't want to get in too much of this because I want you to keep going. Uh, shiver up the leg. Your wife is, uh, your wife is unbelievably beautiful yes. and like literally is like a, a supermodel. She was. She was like the reigning supermodel in South Africa for a few years, and now she's uh, a top photographer here. Yeah, my wife is a much bigger deal than I am. She is much more pretty than I am handsome. Easiest and best decision I ever made was marrying that girl. So what you're saying is it wasn't a lateral move for you. No, no. And in fact, I we became friends first, and I thought there was never uh, a chance in a million years someone as classy, as beautiful, as, as talented, as influential as that would ever date a troll like me. So for years, I just wanted to be her friend. And then... Um, now, did you pass her a note with the box in it? You know, check uh, this if you want to go out with me? How did you almost. do... Almost. I mean, I was just... I was a clown around her. And, I, and let's just say... Had we gotten together that early on when we first met, I would have messed it up somehow. I wasn't, not that I wasn't ready. I definitely would have tried to change myself just for her, but I still had, you know, things to get out of my system maybe. And then so, years later, we finally got together and... Uh, now, she... I'm digressing, so you yeah, got yeah, yeah, to... No, Let's no, no, talk no, about me No, again. no, no, I'm, I want to keep going with this because just for another minute because I think oh. this is fascinating for people. Yeah. Not only just... Uh, I have three secrets to a long marriage or, or, uh, or relationship. You ready? Yeah, because yeah. I think sometimes, you know, we, we our audience, we talk about the business, but a lot of times personal relationships... Yeah. What you do and know is are a reflection of what's happening in your business. So yeah. I think this is important because one of the things that struck me when I met you, and and this we're going to go back to this story uh, that we were talking about because I'm not getting away from that, but I'm it struck I'm me. <laughs> it struck me as how unbelievably uh, in love with you you were, unbelievable passionate, and you spoke about your your partner and your wife as if she was like uh, you know a deity, and it was almost <laughs> like. She was such a huge part of your success and your life, and, and it was that symbiotic thing that was really impressive, and it, it was so grounding for you. I could see how successful and why you were successful because yeah. of it, and I wanted you to share with our audience those three things that you told yeah. me. What are, yeah, I mean, I would not be here uh, if it weren't for the, um, 
you know, the many ways in which, uh, you know, she supported my career, right? And uh, it took me a while. I had to clean up my act before I thought a girl like that would even, you know, would even uh, accept a guy like me, even date a guy like me. Little did I know that she had had a crush on me years prior. I did not know that. Once I found that out, I turned into the Fonz. The floodgates <laughs> opened. Within a month, she was begging me for a commitment. <laughs> All right, not begging, but insisting upon a commitment. <laughs> but friends of mine before that happened years ago remind me that because I was doing, I was hosting all these indie film events, and, and I would always invite her, and she was part of like you know she was on my list. And my friends would remind me she'd walk by, and I'd be like, I'd marry that girl. <laughs> and I was you know throughout the years, I brought a lot of girls home not to meet mom for anything other than to uh, uh, you know take in some of the crazy holidays. And my mother was like, Is she the one? Is this the one? I'm like, no. And then I finally told her about Stephanie. And I said, Mom, I'd marry this girl. And my mother was like, oh, my God. Because I was not going to get married. I come from a divorced family. It was just not in the cards. Anyway, so. Do you think it's harder for a person, a child of a divorced household, to want to make the commitment? Or is it harder for somebody whose parents are together for years and years and years worrying, God, i got to keep this together and yeah. the pressure's on. Which is more pressure, you yeah, think? I mean, I think the whole nurture thing is, is real. They say the kids who start smoking, uh, you know, 90% of them, uh, their parents smoke. So if you come from a broken family or, you know, a divorced family, uh, that definitely affected me. I was like, I ain't never getting married. Look what they did. Look what they did to the kids. I mean, not on purpose. And it wasn't that bad. You know, it could have been much, much worse. But I would, I would venture to guess that kids who come from divorced families, but uh, one of their parents gets remarried and it's a good marriage, that might kind of help, you know, in how they think about marriage, marriage themselves. So uh, the three things that you had shared with me about. Okay. So one, uh, to do something together once a week. That is not a date, though feel free to go on a date. That is where you're both doing something together you've never done, preferably learning, right? So it could be a tango dance class, a pottery class, a real estate seminar. And each one of you can pick you know, what it is and don't tell the other person and you make it into an adventure, preferably uh, where there's other people there. So you're forced to rely on one another and you, there's this kind of energetic bonding thing and you're learning something together, right? So you're growing together and you'll see that it eliminates that one big fight a week, right? And if you can stick to that schedule and each person picks the other week, uh, you'll A, have a lot of fun, you'll learn and grow together and it eliminates some like, uh, you know, the fights too. There's more of a realization that, you know, whoever you're with, if you were to put all their likes and dislikes in a notebook, it might take 36 notebooks. Same, you know, same with both parties. So to realize that unless you kind of remove some of your likes and dislikes, you don't have to go all the way to the Buddha level of detachment of everything. But unless you remove them, you're not making room for another person in your life. So, uh, you know, with my wife and I, uh, you know, ideally... You know, it's kind of a compromise where, you know, you don't have to have the, the house decorated exactly so or she, do, you know, doesn't like it. You don't have to, you know, listen to a certain kind of music at home. You can actually compromise with what she wants to listen to, all that stuff. But with my wife and I, I got rid of all my likes and dislikes and she got rid, rid of none of hers and it still works. I'm not like the henpecked husband, like, yes, honey, yes, honey. But now she's like, so we're only going to eat vegan at home. And I'm like, great, honey. She's like, so we're going to paint everything white in the house. Great, honey. Nothing bothers me. So that helps. And third and final is uh, it's probably the most simple of the rules, but the hardest, uh, you know, to to abide by. And that is from the moment you wake up in the morning, only concentrate on the other person's good qualities. As the bad qualities come in, say, what's the opposite of that? And only concentrate on their good qualities. And the more you concentrate on their good qualities, uh, the more they come out, you know, because when you, 
you know, all those things that when you're first dating during the Eros period where you're willing to overlook everyone's faults, like, oh, it's so cute when he picks his nose in public, that after Eros ends becomes those huge things, right? That you, yeah. you, you know, butt heads on. So, you know, and I had plenty of those. I was a public nose picker. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but like if she, the more she concentrates on my good qualities, the more I concentrate on her good qualities, the less uh, we're thinking about the bad qualities. And that's what causes friction. That's awesome. And I, we're going to get back later to how I think that relates to how successful you are in the business and what's happening. So, so we're going back to where you were as a kid. And so you started as a male model and, uh, <laughs> and you're, I did a few commercials and you did a few commercials. I was in, coming up to New York from South New Jersey, like a few times a week. And how did you get those school? opportunities? Like, did they just come? Did your mom look them up? Did well, you no, get an there was, agent there was or a local, like kind of modeling manager in that area, believe uh-huh. it or not. So, you know, they dragged me over there and they put me on camera and they were like, just go nuts. And I was like, mah, 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 mah. and they're like, we love them. We're going to send them to New York to meet. It was a kids, uh, uh, it was a kid, like a kids agency, Shriver, Shriver, anyway, and then they signed me, and then from that point on, I was just coming up for go-sees all the time, and I started booking jobs, and I was leaving school. Now, the first job you really booked where you said to yourself, holy shit, I I don't think I want to do anything else. Mm. What was it? It was a print campaign with my favorite Muppet. Sweetums, (laughs) Sweetums, <laughs> and inside the costume was Junior Jim Henson Junior. That's his name, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's when. It, Why that's was he it, in the costume? Because he was. I don't know. It was for, and it was Apple. It was for Apple, and I was the kid in it, holding like one of the first. It wasn't a laptop, like one of the first, one of those little dinosaur-looking computers. Like the box? Yeah, yeah. I it's think so, it was the Apple IIe or something. It's so weird you say that. Like I remember going to Louis C.K.'s apartment. In like the 80s, and he had that like that beige box, black and white box with the mouse attached to it, that small thing, and that's probably what you did the commercial for. Well, yeah, well, and and I got there, and I wasn't uh, uh, that familiar with computers, or even we I knew we knew Apple as a brand, you know, and I think we did have the first one. It was two C and two E. Anyway, so I show up there, and I'm shooting with. My favorite Muppet, Sweetums, the really big guy, that guy. And I'm like, cool. And we went through the whole shoot, uh, you know, doing it. And I was just like, you know, I was a happy kid. I'm here with my, you know, my favorite Muppet doing this app. You know, they're paying me nice. And then he takes off his, uh, you know, the, the, the character's head. And it, turn, it turns out to be Jim Henson Jr., his son, who I was doing the shoot with. So wow. I really got jazzed about that. I finally in, uh, so that was when I was trauma. I finally did a play in high school. Uh, I think it was my senior year and uh, where I went to high school, you know, they called them theater fags, right? So uh-huh. <laughs> you did not do, I was the, I was on football. I did, you know, all these other sports things and I was like, frick it, man, I'm doing, I'm doing the play. And I got cast as the lead uh, uh, villain in Oliver, Bill Sykes, strong wow. men <laughs> tremble when they hear it. They've got, <laughs> and, uh, and I fricking loved it. And just being in front of, uh, you audience. were the guy who beat the woman behind the, uh, yeah, oh. I was Bill Sykes. And then this was my first live stunt where they built this, uh, you know, at the end of the, uh, at the end of the show, like. Bill gets shot on a bridge or something like over the Thames or whatever. So I actually had them, uh, uh, you know, take out some of the wood of the bridge and make it styrofoam. So when I got shot, I would fall off the bridge. And that was like my first live stunt. Right. And then uh, finally, I decided to 
at, I think I applied at 15 and a half or age 16 to NYU to School of the Arts. And I said to myself, if I get in, if so I get in. So early admission you applied. I got in early admission. So I went to New York at like 16 and wait, a half. Wait, had you, did you skip a grade in high school or? I, um, no, I was just young for my class, right? My birthday was, uh, it's in September. So I was always the youngest in my class. But yeah, my last two years of high school, I was what they call a, uh, uh, Jesus, I can't remember the name. I was in all those, you know, the top classes. And my, by my last year, I the gate program, in. the gifted yeah, program. Yeah, I did, by my last year, I I came in and I I was smart about how I scheduled my classes, <laughs> that I was done at 11 a.m. I came in at nine and was done at 11, uh, because I had gotten all my credits the year before, and then I got into NYU early decision, and then it was like. Off to the this is like a paradox because in my classes it basically looked like the couch from Animal House. <laughs> you know, that's that's the, I was you know like in the lowest track of everything. I was functionally <laughs> really? retarded, and meanwhile I'm talking to somebody who was a genius. So okay, so you go to NYU and uh, and how do you like New York? I loved it. I mean, not only did I, um, you know, it was like a whole new world, <laughs> <laughs> but being in the village. <laughs> At NYU, it was just incredible, especially for a guy like me who was like from, you know, a very kind of, uh, uh, you know, Philadelphia, South New Jersey, very, you know, very, very different. I met gay people for the first time, or at least ones that were out of the closet. Seems know. to be the running theme of this podcast. Yeah, let's do the gay voice, Billy, for everybody. <laughs> it's Christmas. Come on. <laughs> um, so what year were you there at NYU? Well, but see, here's the thing. Like, no one knows my real age, and when you don't tell people, they skew older online. So what you see on Wikipedia, whoever put that okay. up there, is wrong. All right, but so you were NYU in 2010. You know why? One, <laughs> 2010. <laughs> Close, but... Um, one, when I had an agent, and I was just primarily active, they're like, never tell anyone your age, right? You don't want to age yourself, because you, know, you could be an overnight sensation in 15 years, as long as you dye the gray, you could still play you could still play younger. And two, I started following a certain yogi, right, who I subscribe to uh, deeply, you can call me a chela or a devotee, uh, but he says that unless the person, you know, you tell your age to, and they ask, is the frickin' Buddha, they cannot help but to judge you, oh, he looks good for his age. He looks bad for his age. He's done well for his age. He hasn't done well for his age. And I don't need that, Barry. I am ageless, timeless, eternal, made from the stars. And so are you. <laughs> well, that's that's the biggest compliment <laughs> I've ever had though, so far, that made from go. the stars, the Jewish stars. The, the, uh, so I went to NYU and at fell in love. At some undefined year, yes. At some undefined year and fell in love with, with performance. And I started off in the, uh, I guess, the traditional kind of like circle in the square method acting and... Uh, uh, Meisner, and then I started to really get into uh, performance art and avant-garde theater and dance, like Grotowski work. So then they switched me to the experimental theater wing, which at the time was the only kind of uh, acting program at New York, uh, at NYU, where you weren't shopped out to these already existing acting studios. You know, Lee Strasberg. Duh, 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 duh. Uh, this one was built in, uh, you know, within. And the rumor was that you know we get all weird and we take our clothes off and we do all these like dance pieces it was weird but it wasn't what everyone thought it was and i at you know i was just so creatively fulfilled that you know we weren't supposed to do professional work until i think it was the junior or senior year but i started freshman sophomore year and i was performing with these critically acclaimed performance art dance troops via theater uh very kind of Anne bogart grotowski based we were getting great new york times reviews and i was happy as a pig in shit and i said to myself you know what if i if I just do this for the rest of my life, I know there's no money in it, I will be happy. And then, right as I was graduating, and this is where I guess you can figure out what year and my age, <clears throat> as I was, uh, I walked down the graduation aisle, I had 
auditioned for my very first movie and I got the lead role and it was called Tromeo and Juliet. Uh, branded for life as Tromeo. And it became kind of like a, a cult hit, you know, so that when I did that movie, because I was primarily a theater actor, when I did that movie and saw it for the first time at Cannes, then this next like major thing happened to me because I was happy in theater and I would have done performance art dance theater that only like the downtown New York elite and New York Times would pay attention to and there was no money in it. Uh, but like a month before I graduated, I, I had uh, some friends of mine, we were sitting around, I remember this like it was yesterday on St. Mark's Place where I had my apartment and me and a bunch of my buddies who were about to graduate were sitting around, they're like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm fine. I know what I'm doing. I'm a part of this really cool, critically acclaimed theater company. I'm good. And someone had a backstage magazine and they're like, oh my God, Troma's auditioning. And I was like, who's Troma? And they're like, you don't know Troma? I was like, and they told me what kind of movies they were. And I was like, no, I ain't never seen any shit like that. I was the kid who was out climbing trees instead of watching Sick and Twisted, like, you know, cult movies. And they're like, oh, man, let's all audition. Let's all audition. And I was like, all right, fine, let's do it. So you go to your audition. Now, before you start, you go into the audition. You, mm. Were you the kind of guy, uh, the kind of actor who spent hours and hours and hours and hours before you went in? You were off book. Mm -hmm. And you went in, no paper in your hand, nothing. Right. You went well, no, in. No, no, no. I was off book. I, oh, I was, I'm a Virgo. I prepared a lot. But I'm so good that I pretended that I wasn't off book all the time. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. Why not? Because, because they don't like it when you're off book because it means that they can't, uh, uh, they can't work with you, right? It's already like you're already set in stone with your performance. But if you're off book enough and you know that you can switch on a dime, as long as you're holding the piece of paper, they think, wow, he's so good. He's not even off book. Yeah, and I've always, and what's weird is I've always been very much against bringing the paper in. I've always told actors and actresses that I think that you should go in, you should have the paper, put it down on the desk or whatever, and perform the scene like the director would be seeing you perform. Mm. And then after you're done, pick up the paper, and then he knows that you are ready for notes if yeah. you want any. Good. But I always was I always was against somebody holding the paper, reading off the paper, because I thought to myself, why are you even in here? You got to show right. these people what you're about to do and how you're going to do it for them. So you go in for the audition, you walk out of the room. What are you saying to yourself as you're walking out of the room? Do you say, I got this? Or you say, really, I tanked? Or what are you thinking? Well, I, I, um, well, first of all, I overprepared. And I, I don't know why, but they, Lloyd Kaufman, Mr. Troma, uh, tells a story that I walked in with the pizza box. Uh, and I think I used it as a prop, you know, because the script changed so much, but I have no idea why I brought a pizza box in. But I would not have even auditioned for it if there weren't real Shakespeare in the script. That's, that was the thing for me, because, like, you know, they told me about the movies. I'm like, eh, I don't know if I'm interested in that. I'm, I, you know, I like what I'm doing. And then they said, no, there's actual Shakespeare, and it's like the punk rock version, but there's actual iambic pentameter and real Shakespeare lines that they then, some of them, they manipulated. So I got the sides, and I was like, all right, I'll do this. I'll definitely do this. So I went in, killed it. And then tell me a couple of lines that you remember that you performed. What light, what light through yonder plexiglass breaks? <laughs> um, oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was so weird. It was almost like, um, you know, there was actual an actual Shakespeare line and then they'd be like, but fuck it. You know, I mean, then there would be this kind of street line. So it was a good kind of like, you know, but you walked out and said, I killed it. I walked out definitely knowing I was going to get called back. Okay, you know? so you got a call back. I got a call back. And then and, what happens? And then they made me, um, 
you know, they, they trauma because there's nudity, because there's like kissing and stuff. When they call you back, they call you back like nine times just to break you and just to make sure that everything you you say you're going to do if you get the job on set that you actually do in the room and they're taping it. Because so many times <laughs> they cast girls who are supposed to do nudity and then all of a sudden they show up on set and they're like, no, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. Okay, so, so you go back nine times and are you saying that some of the times you went back they brought the characters in that they thought might yes. be right and they were testing yeah. different combinations yeah. and they would ask the women to take their clothes off to simulate what it was going to be like yes. in the scene so they knew that they were prepared to take their clothes yes. off. So you had to do these auditions with several different nude women. Yeah, but by the time, because I think uh, the casting process had been going on for a little while, <clears throat> by the time I auditioned, it was like, I think later that day they called me back and they immediately paired me with uh, the girl who ended up being Juliet, Jane Jensen, who was awesome. And I was a producer on the very next Troma movie and I was also the casting director. Wait, uh, wait what was the next one? Terra Firmer? Terra Firmer, where I played the cinema's You know, first I just have to share film. something with you that's going to be kind of odd. And this podcast is so unique from any other one I've ever done. I want to tell you this is this this is so far from what normally happens. But I have <laughs> I to know. <laughs> I have to tell you something that's going to freak you out. Oh jeez. So you've seen that movie several times, right? Who? What movie? You cast Terra Firmer, right? Yes, you yes. were a producer on it? Yes. Okay. Well, there was a young boy that was cast in that movie. Uh, that was the boy with the severed head. You remember that boy? The boy with the severed head. The boy was holding the severed head. Oh, oh. or the boy with the severed. Was head. it after the car crash? Found a peanut. Found a peanut. Found well, a we're gonna find out in just one second. Jake, Jake, my uh, my my intern and my Are you sister in here. No, get come, over here. Come here, Jake. I see it in his eyes now. He looks phone. familiar. Jakey! Where have you been all these years? There's Holy Jake. crap. Uh, do you want to just sit down for a second here, please? All right. It was, was it the found a peanut scene in the car? It no. was. Uh, this there is was hilarious. An, there was an escalator. And oh, my God, with the big fat guy. Joe Fleischaker, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, yeah. And then the severed head came rolling down the escalator. And you picked it up. That I picked it you. up, and I threw it up and down and said, Mommy, Mommy, look at my new toy. Yes. That was I, my... Uh... Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't say how old you are, because then they're going to figure out my age. Okay. Okay. okay but you, you still, you're just, you're a young kid. You're like 10, 14, something like that, yeah. 16. You're not even old enough to be working for Barry. You my voice just cracked. What is this, indentured servitude? No, he's my protege. I don't care how old he is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice to re-meet you, and yeah. um, I'm glad you made it through that experience. Not many people do. My uh, my mom was in the movie as well. Wait, wait, wait she was also in uh, the the she was England in Ingrid Caplet. Yes. Oh my God, how's she doing? Was your mom one of the ones that had to take their clothes no. off? No. <laughs> Probably. No, she wasn't. No, she wasn't. She no, she played Cappy's wife. She right, played Juliet's yeah. mom. No, she did not have to get uh, naked. But I remember she was already cast. She was already cast because she was like a, a friend of the family or something like that, and she didn't have to audition, and she was great. Your mom is she still? Oh, cool. Doing doing it? She is not. She's no. still getting naked for trauma. No, I'm just kidding. She, <laughs> she did not have to get naked. naked, but just not on camera. Right? <laughs> oh, oh, Jakey, come on! I hope mom's not listening to this. That Thanks is awesome. All right, that Jake. is so cool. That is my. This That's is your life never moment. Happened. This is the first. This is Ever. your life moment in my. This podcast. is your life. How did you destroy that poor man's childhood? <laughs> Wasn't me. Blame Lloyd Kaufman. <laughs> All right. So take me through this. Uh, take me through the next thing that happened. So, or do you get like a manager or an agent at that time? Are you like a? 
Are you starting? Yeah. Are people starting to come after you? Or are you still making sixty-five thousand dollars a movie for uh, or less than that? For, you know, as our schedule F is like sixty-five thousand. Whoa, 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 whoa! First of all, or you no made just like a hundred dollars a five thousand. So you just made like a hundred dollars a day. Non-union at the time at SAG, I was told because I wasn't a SAG actor, they would hang up signs at SAG in New York saying, "Do not work with trauma." Right, non-union stuff. They would put the uh, uh, the cattle calls in backstage, and like th- you know, a thousand or two thousand people would would uh, be cast. What were if the budgets? Were, of, sad, what were the budgets of these movies? I think they were around three hundred thousand dollars. Got it. Know, made on on a dime, so to speak. Um, but right after Tromeo and Juliet*. Oh, here's where I was getting to. So it it they premiered it at Cannes at the Cannes Market. And I go there with Troma, who's famous at Cannes, right? They do this uh, the, the promenade up and down the Quasette every day at 4 p.m. Troma, Troma. And you walk around with all these hot chicks and all the guys dressed as the characters. But I saw the movie for the first time and I was like, oh my God. I couldn't believe how bad I looked. And I'm vain, right? I was an actor. But I was doing theater acting on film. And that's when it hit me. I was like, I need to crack this film bug. And I'm still trying to crack it, right? Because I'm kind of an animated guy. But the, you know, this camera is catching everything. I don't need to emote like this, you know, to the back of the theater. And in fact, the more subtle, the better. On, on, so when I saw this, I was freaked out. But obviously there was a director he was directing. He doesn't care. Lloyd Kaufman, like his, his acting direction is, have you ever seen cartoons? Do that. That's what, okay. So that's, that's the like, direction he was giving not you. Not for the lead actor. You want him to be. You know, I could have done. You know, there are other performances where I'm big. I think my greatest performance was uh, just released last year called Chop, uh, Chop the movie. And they say it's it's my best performance. It's comedy horror. There are points where I'm really big, but it's 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 uh, rooted in in you know truthfulness and and reality, right? So I think. When I'm, did you do Chop? Uh, 2011 we shot it but it came out last so you're year. still you're no, still no, 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 no. The, the past few movies and John uh, Johnny X the one that just came out yeah uh, the last black and white widescreen musical I think ever to be made uh, on the film uh, and I sing for the first time that one we shot uh, we actually started shooting it in 2003 and finished it in 2010 so the past few movies that I've had to come out in the past few years were made prior I have not accepted and I still you know get uh, offers to for roles sales agents tell me that if you cast me as the lead in your comedy horror movie you can safely make a three hundred thousand to five hundred thousand dollar movie and get your money back so i still get offers but i've done it a bunch i've always been about like the new adventure you know okay so uh, unless it's a really good script it's a role <laughs> i've never played before and i can get it done you can shoot me out in like five or seven days i'll work quickly quickly people Unbelievable. So the, tell me about the first digital experience, the first digital... That was right after Tromeo. My very second movie was Anthony Bregman's producerial debut. Is that a phrase? Uh, who's a very kind of a big deal as a producer. He's kind of a mentor of mine uh, in, the, in the indie film world. He was Ted Hope's assistant, who was also a, he was a very reputable indie film producer. And Sony, this is the story I was told, Sony... Uh, contacted Good Machine, which was one of the, uh, the really good indie film companies at the time. We're going back 1996, I think. And they sent to Good Machine, they said, hey, we have this digital beta cam uh, that we just, you know, we're working with. It's, it's in, uh, what do you call, pro- it's a prototype. But can you guys test it for us? And Anthony said, we'll do better than that. I want to make my first feature film with it. And so he got this really weird script uh, called Love God. <clears throat> and they made the first fully digital digital feature film with it. And this was, I think, four or five months after we started shooting that after Tromeo. So this was my second movie. Second movie, also a starring role. Happened to be, you know, in all digital movies. And then 
after that, yeah, kind of, I got kind of integrated into the scene. Although I'll tell you, God bless uh, Lloyd Kaufman and Troma. You know, they they have a niche, they have an audience, and and people, you know, get something out of the kind of movies they make. But but starting out at Troma was like almost like having a porn career because it opened up some doors, but it slammed other ones shut. And I did. I had to work really hard for the next few years. And this was like the last indie film boom in New York. This was like the last hurrah. None of us knew it. But I had racked up, you know, because then right after Love God, uh, Anthony's movie, I did Terra Firmer. Which that was the first uh, hermaphrodite serial killer movie of all time. It wasn't written that way, but Lloyd said he offered me uh, uh, the... uh, a lead role in it, the lead male role. And I read the script and I was like, ah, you know, I've kind of been there, done that. I was like, I want to play the, uh, the female killer, but I want to turn it into a hermaphrodite. And he said, what are you, crazy? Because <laughs> I had just taken a women's studies course at NYU and the whole section was about hermaphrodites and it just fascinated me, right? Uh, the, 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 the middle sex. So I told him how it could work and he was like, all right. And I was like, well, look, uh, if you want me to do this, I want to play that role as a hermaphrodite. I want to be a producer because I want to get, you know, uh, uh, time behind the camera. And I want to be the casting director, and I, and I want to be your right hand on this movie like James Gunn was for Tromeo and Juliet. And stage all the action, rehearse all the actors, and, you know, be that guy, right? So, and he said, he said, yeah. A lot of people can't handle trauma movies. It's like going to war, right? I mean, it's, it's not an easy gig for everybody involved. But the when you make- actors, well, it's like, you know, you're getting cheese sandwiches. You know, Lloyd, Lloyd you know, he, he, he kind of, uh, he's, he's a crazy man on set. Like, there's a documentary about it called Farts of Darkness that was shot during Terra Firmer. And he's a maniac, but he does it on purpose, right? Sometimes the first thing he does when he gets onto the set is make a PA cry on purpose because he thinks it sets a tone throughout the rest of the production that you better be on your toes, right? So it's hard and they'll give lots of people their, their first chance in the industry. And, but they work you so hard and there's like no money and it's really grueling hours, it's non-union. I mean, it's really, really hard. The, the ones who have it easiest are the lead actors. We don't get yelled at and Lloyd and Michael, or Lloyd especially, yells at everybody uh, because you know, if it's, even if it's, if it's a PA, if it's a, a, you know, a cameo person, even if it's a co-star, if you quit, they'll just put a frickin', you know, melon costume in your place. But if a lead quits, then they have to reshoot. So, so they were always nice to their leads. But when I became a producer and was, you know, Lloyd's right hand on Terra Firmer, um, you know, being behind the scenes on a trauma movie, just watch that frickin' documentary. It is, it is crazy. It is insane. It is war. And no, not many people go back for a second trauma movie. The reason I went back, I said, if I'm going to do this again, It'll be as sure. If you want me as a lead actor, as a star in the movie, great. But I want to do it this way. And I want all this experience behind the camera because I, I knew that's what I wanted to start doing was more than just acting. Isn't it odd? You have like literally you don't have any money at all. You're still like living in existence in New York City. I imagine you're living in a studio apartment somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have no money. You're basically living check to check. You probably have odd jobs. And, and not here, during the production, though. You're but not during the production. Off. You're not well, spending money because you're working practically. And craft services uh, yeah. you're eating. But the point I'm trying to make here is that after the movie comes out, if you were to, let's say, to walk through a casino in Vegas with me, uh, literally we'd be held up for like two, three hours because so many people would be stopping you because they know you. All these kids and people, fans would know you. And yet, you, I'm talking about the height of the craziness of it. Yeah, it did get a little weird. <laughs> and so, but yet you, you're living in a studio apartment. Everybody yeah, thinks yeah. you're a multimillionaire 
because you're a star of a movie right. and you have nothing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're sleeping on uh, the, the characters' costumes and can on so, the floor. <laughs> so how do you so how do you get to the point where you it, it's the weirdest thing in the world to be an artist and those artists that are listening or anybody listening in any job. Yeah. Perception isn't always reality wherever you are whether you're like working in an accounting office or a law office people might think you know you're wearing the nice suit you got the nice briefcase you walk out People think you're successful, right. but you're not. You might have a great lease on a car that costs you only $250 a month, and it's a beautiful car, and everywhere you go, people think you're rich, but you're not. Right. And so how do you figure out at that point to get to the next level knowing that everyone thinks you're <clears throat> successful right. and you're living the lie? You have to go out with people. They're probably thinking you're going to pay for their dinner or do whatever. Right. How do you get to the next point where you actually... <clears throat> are putting money in your pocket? It's a, it's a really good question, and there's a lot of people, you know, struggling with that right now, you know? And if it weren't for really good friends during that time, like Carter Smith and, and a number of people who essentially supported me, you know, they were the ones buying me slices of pizza. They were the ones, if we went, went out for a beer, I mean, I had like a core group of friends who took care of me during all those years. Because we were friends and, and there was like true love there, but also they knew what I was doing and, uh, and I always thought, and I was wrong about this, I always thought eventually, because I was so talented, it would get recognized, right? And that the money or the success or the studio movies would come. And that was like the furthest thing from the truth, right? Because, you know, they say it's, it's not what you know, it's who you, who you know. There's definitely truth to that. But if you just rely on your talent and think that that's going to make you succeed... You know, I don't know how many people we can point to that it, that actually worked. They were also one of the hardest working people. They learned the game. They learned how to network, which is just as important as how to like win the you know the audition or the role in the audition room. Uh, and it took me a long time to realize that. And when I did, like if I were to go back now, I think I'd have a very different uh, uh, career as uh, you know if I were to have stayed as an actor. But it was only years later. So I racked up during this indie film boom in New York. I racked up like 25 movies, most of them uh, starring in or, or acting in. But then I immediately started producing. And then I started making a little money producing. Not much, because again, they were low-budget movies. But, you know, more than I was getting paid, you know, previously. Uh, and then, you know, I just kind of got into that, that world, the indie film world, where we would have movies uh, premiere at big festivals. And the audiences are so supportive that you think every screening you have at a Sundance, Cannes, Toronto, or whatever, you're like, oh my God, this is a hit. This is going to, you know, this is the one. This is the one. And then you're lucky if it plays eight months on the festival circuit with real festivals. You're lucky to get a theatrical deal. You, people are giving their movies away for distribution. Even after they win, like, major festivals, like, you know, the top distributor, like, oh, here's $17,000 for as an advance after you've begged, borrowed, and stolen, you know, to, to get the movie made. You're lucky to get a TV deal. I can get you a, a VOD and a DVD deal. But then it really occurred to me, especially in like the early starting mid-2000s when YouTube came out, that at the end of the day, even if you have a healthy festival run and all that stuff, you know, you're lucky if 5,000 people see your indie movie. There's just, you know, it, to me, it's going the way of ballet and opera, which is, I stole that from Ted Hope. So seven years ago, you're still in a position in your mind where you're struggling, you're living sort of, I don't want to say check to check, but that, you know, you've been doing this a significant amount of time. You've done 25 movies. You've produced a lot of them. You're moving the needle. You're doing everything that a lot of people can't do. 
and you're still not tasting the caviar. So what? But you notice YouTube. You notice things that are happening. And what happens? How do you how do you make that leap? What what well, what happens? It was it was you know kind of a necessity if I wanted to stay married. So after the economy crashed, uh, I said to myself to stay in this business. But this was you know YouTube had just come out right 2005 2006, and my intuition said that's it that's the future. And I, I think now had I switched as talent to YouTube in 2005 2006. I could be one of those top YouTube stars making over a million dollars a year. However, I was, I had like nine indie films I was trying to get off the ground, right? Um, and when the economy crashed, the farm pre-sales were out, the hedge funds were out. Okay, it was like everyone, like a turtle, pulled in, pulled in their legs. And I said to myself, if I want to stay in indie films, even as a producer, the new foreign pre-sales is working with stars and other star-based film industries like Bollywood, like Korea, Russia, even Egypt at the time uh, before the Arab Spring had a burgeoning film industry. So if you, you know, had, had a script that could play in these markets and you're actually attached to those actors, you will have lines around the corner and you can paper, you know, their, their pre-sale essentially, right? And I also thought, you know, to stay in it because we see what's happening. There's this tectonic shift going on right now and it's going back east. Tectonic. Yes, it's going back. Is that a real word or one that you it's invented? It's a real word, but it, it does not apply to this, to this sentence. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, 2,000 years ago, the greatest GDPs were China and India. It is moving GDP back for our audience is? Gross domestic product. Thank you. So I do think a lot of it is moving back east. You look at the populations up there. So we have to start even in in the entertainment industry as a whole. We have to start thinking globally, not just getting big in America, not just random white people buying your movie tickets, not just casting random white people in your independent horror movies. You know, you know, go for an underserved market. It's an all black horror movie. It's a it's a gay horror movie. Cast all Indians in your horror movie because if every indie film you make that is not a critical and commercial success, you're hurting your own career. And it's, it's kind of ego. No, I just have to get a movie made. I just wanna, I wanna go, go see the movie I would make. All right, that's eight people, here's $80, go make your movie. <laughs> you can show me any script in the world and I'll tell you what you should make it for. And everyone wants to make it for much more than the script is actually worth. So, to me, the, at the time, the new independent was international. So I went to, I kind of did my homework and I went to, uh, I picked Bollywood, I went to India, right? And an exploratory trip, but I reached out to a bunch of people beforehand, and uh, the Indians tell me, who I'm still really friendly with, uh, that because I was a Westerner, and I had some legitimate credits, uh, they were interested in working with Westerners. So I started working with Shah Rukh Khan, and you know, all these great you know, uh, Indian superstars. And I was living large, man. I was there on and off for three, three and a half years. When you say living large, so I had a cook, so a driver, words. a gardener, millions of US, of, uh, US dollars from Indians were essentially flowing through me to make two movies and two soundtracks. I was hiring American creatives to go there and, uh, and help you know, uh, uh, make these projects. And to me, I was very proud. It was like reverse outsourcing, right? So this is now June of 2011. I think my last trip there was eight months. And my wife, who's like we were talking about, a very big deal here, she's got her own business. She said, I realize you're doing great there. I was on the cover of the Bombay Times, which is like the New York Post of all of India. Uh, and she said, you know, but if you stay, we have a problem because I'm not coming there. And the longer you stay, the more we're gonna have a problem in our marriage. Within three days, I was back. And I came back, and this is when I made the decision that I kinda wanted to make in 2005, 2006, to switch from traditional, yes, it was 
independent film, cult movie, traditional, to online. And right when I got back, you know, all my social media, because everyone knew I was abroad, uh, everyone started hitting me up in the Indian cult film network that was, you know, a part of that crowd. They were like, you know, come on, produce my movie, finance my movie, package my movie, star in my movie. And I was like, no, 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 no. And I shut them all out. And for two weeks, I put myself through an education on what I wanted to do, online video and YouTube, because I really saw that as the future. All right. So at that time, what year is that now? 2011. So in 2011, when you do all your research, you come back. It's unbelievable to me. You worked your ass off here in the United States. You produce and star in uh, various forms of producing and starring 25 independent movies. Getting hit by cars, jumping off buildings. What? So what's weird is that you see so you're working hard. You're doing all these things. You don't have a pot to piss in. I wouldn't say that. You have to go to. You have to go to <laughs> India. You go to <laughs> India. And become a big effing deal. And become a big deal and millions and millions of dollars being thrown your way after working and gutting it out. And it just shows you the persistence of, you know, eventually it'll all take place even after you leave your place. So, and just to give you an example of that, like if any artist is listening, let's just say a stand-up comedian is working, um, let's say, in, in Boston. And you're working in Boston, you're working in Boston, you don't feel like you're getting the time of day in Boston. Well, a lot of times what happens is you move to Los Angeles or you move to New York or some other place, and all of a sudden you go in and you're like, you have the chops, you're great, you're a new face, and, and people rally around you and you start making money in that new place. Right. Same with any job. You're, you're, you're an accountant in, 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 in Chicago, you don't feel things are going well or whatever. You can move to another city, start a new life, and, and things sort of take off that way. Yeah. So now you have some money in your pocket. You have a newfound renewal commitment yeah. with your relationship. It's 2011. You're looking at the research you're doing amongst the uh, web and the Internet and all the things that are happening in that world. And what after all your research, what did it tell you? What did you find out, and what was the decision you made? Well, it was, it was like two weeks of hardcore research. We have this huge dining room table, and it's just filled with stacks of printouts about YouTube and online video, highlighted, notated. And after the end of two weeks, I was like, ha-ha, I know everything about the online video YouTube industry, which was not true. There's always room for improvement. But you know, I don't know if you know this. I'm kind of a fruity metaphysical type, and I believe that what you think about, you bring about, whether it's good or bad, right? So at the end of it, I think my, my focus was so intent on, on you know, getting into the online video industry that I got the call at the, pretty much the end of the two weeks. And it was someone who was working at Maker in, in Human Resources. Actually, her name was Liza Lynn. And her husband, Michael Lynn, was the producer of East True Hollywood Story for like 15 years, I think. And we had done a little pilot together years prior. And she was like, hey, you know, I heard you're, I heard you're back. And I'm at this new company called Maker Studios. And I just had this weird intuition that you'd fit in. And I was like, I know Maker because I just studied them. So then she got me the interview with the founders. And then... And what did your studies tell you when you looked at Maker before you even had that conversation? Well, th that this, it was started by, it was the first, you know, it was already an MCN. They were already using that term at the time, multi-channel network. They had 300 channels when I started at Maker in uh, August, September of 2011. They now have like 75,000 channels. Uh, so I went in, and to me, it was it, it was the only MCN that was started by actual talent, YouTube talent. So it was like the new media version of United Artists or something. And 
they were just kind of getting formalized. It was, uh, I went over to visit them and people are shooting and editing and there's so much activity. And it reminded me of my kind of uh, reading of early Hollywood history, you know, when we read about up and down Coenga Boulevard with the silent guys, just everyone shooting because there's a demand for it. There are millions and millions of people waiting for those, those talent videos online. You know, there aren't millions and millions of people. There used to be, you know, waiting in line in a, in a movie theater for the next, you know, Buster Keaton movie or whatever it was. And a lot of those early guys were independents. So it kind of happened all over again, except online. There was these independent, you know, creators on YouTube. They had a platform that was totally democratized. The gatekeepers were gone. And they slowly, within, you know, a few years, were building up an audience. And now you have a direct connection to that audience. And you can move that audience around. They spend 50 to $100 million. What did Jer uh, Bruckheimer say at the last Producers Guild thing? He said, you know, our business is moving audiences to make sure that after our last big studio movie that that same audience, or maybe, you know, more, are there for the next one. So they spend 50 or $100 million a year out to make sure that that audience is there. And what's odd is that's the key to anything, any artist moving that's audiences. listening right now is that it's just a key is just moving audiences from yes. one place to the other from your twitter so, to your youtube twitter to youtube, youtube to your vine to your instagram to your facebook whatever it is yeah. and if you're if you're a musical artist you know yeah. getting them to go yeah. from uh listening to something on a digital recording to actually buying the product in the store and then right. actually going to the concert and right. and then if you break off in the films going to that and and right. doing that and that's what it is yeah. if you're a comedian it's you know are they going to read my book? Right. Are they going to listen to my podcast? Right. Are they going to go to my movies? And, yeah. and a lot of artists have problems bringing those audience with them because yeah. they don't have $50 million to bring them. True. To, but uh, now you have the tools. It's, it's the true self-distribution. Like people still, you know, contact me about working on indie films or giving them advice, actors, you know, and so forth. And, you know, when I started out, a triple threat was someone who could act, sing, and dance, right? Today, a triple threat is someone who can perform, which means all three of those things and more, but also someone who can shoot and edit and create their own music on the computer, you know? And that is their black box theater, and it's now like YouTube, right? Uh, instead of, like, being an actor, I mean, there's still plenty of actors in L.A. They're just waiting tables, trying to get auditions, and if they, you know, if they want to kind of creatively express, you know, with their instrument, they're doing shows at the little black box theaters on Santa Monica Boulevard, and that is, like, not the way to do it anymore. Well, I mean, it's, it's just the thing. is like, do you want to be working for somebody else yeah. Or do you want somebody else to be working for you? Right. My two goals when I, when I switched and I, when I started at Maker, I said I want to learn as much as I can. And I want to create as much value as I can in whatever area of the company, considering my varied experience. Because I became a company man. And for the first time, because I had been, I was financing movies so I could star in them. And, and once I said, I'm a company man now, and I took the emphasis off just me, and it was for the greater good for this company, stratospheric rise. And so tell me the first thing that you initiated for Maker that sort of like passed a lot of their other initiatives like a rocket ship. And it was mm -hmm. something that you had an eye for, or you saw, or you said, let's make a deal, or let's get this yeah. in, or let's start well, that. It, it was definitely the, you know, bringing in some traditional celebrities. And at the time, Maker uh, was the first to do that. So when I signed Kevin Smith and Margaret Cho and Adrian Grenier, so that was like kind of a, kind of a big deal. Um, now, how do you sign these people knowing you have like $6 in a bucket of chicken in your budget? 
and you have yeah. like as much as you have well, for uh, maker for terra firmer uh, to to right, make right, deals right. with people. Yeah, um, you know, maker had even then leverage in the sense that they were the you know the the multi-channel network online as an independent they were looked at as the ua the most talent friendly um and then they had this influence you know first when i first got there it was 300 million views a month across and within a few months it was half a billion then a billion then two i mean it was just growing so fast that when you're talking to you know even traditional celebrities if they themselves want to expand their brand or, or their personal brand or their business, and if they don't already have a really big YouTube channel or you know they're not like uh, they don't have a social media team and so forth, so those were the kinds of things we would offer them. Like we're really going to try to blow you up on YouTube and online, you know, and you know as I call it the network effect. Sometimes we can bring channels in, and you know through via collaborations on the channels, kind of drive traffic to the new channels and help them grow that way. So that was one thing, and then they taught me. Uh, actually, Andy Fabergé was my internal maker mentor about how to sign channels, uh, like the, um, the, the the deals and how to reach out. And, and then it was just, it was off to the races. I signed a lot of channels, a number of them that became really big. And then I signed a number of channels that were already big and, and brought them into the network. And I think at my peak, I had like three or 400 million views a month as part of the maker total just from the channels I had signed, right? And then the other thing I think, I think that really kind of... Um, made an impression at Maker was the vertical strategy. A vertical to me at the time was just a mini network of channels of the same genre or category, right? So it could be moms or cars or pets or tech. Uh, and because the election was coming up, I wanted to build kind of a political entertainment vertical, a network. Uh, and I called it Polypop. And, you know, it, it succeeded. Bad lip reading came out of that. Barack Stubbs came out of that. Uh, maker at the time, there was some financial uh, restructuring going on, so you know, the, essentially that network ran out of money. But then, right when I finished that, I I helped build out the Moms Network. So the Moms Network was like four channels at the time, and then I signed like 40 more. Optim, I became kind of an optimization expert, so I optimized them one by one. Uh, I get credit for this community strategy, which I did not come up with, but I helped execute. Where you know you can optimize them as a group, get everyone to interact online, which is what the collective level. is trying to do with their initiative. Uh, right. Every, yeah. Everyone. We all know, especially the people working in the industry, know what to do, but it's not necessarily easy to, it's all to about get the it execution. Done. It's all about the execution. So I execute. I execute. Yes. <laughs> Ow. Um, so, so I built so, verticals within Maker and, and launched them. Right? So tell me what the business model was when you came there to monetize all these channels and to make it a financial success right. and to help the artist make money. Right. What was the business model for the artist? Right. to make money and what was the business model for the yeah. company to make money yeah on a very kind of you know uh layman's terms level it's a, we call it cpms cost per malay and a malay i believe is latin for a thousand views right? explain that to our audience because this okay. is fascinating okay so when on youtube when you see those commercials those pre-roll ads before videos and even the display ads and the overlay ads uh, they're charged at uh, CPM, and TV has CPMs, uh, CPMs as well. It's like, you know, per thousand viewers or whatever. And that is what is charged advertisers, right? So at the time when I first started at Maker, I think the, the average CPM 
per thousand views that, that advertisers were charged was like around $2.50. So right, you know, let's say you just started a channel and the average CPM, because you just start, you're gonna get the bottom basement barrel CPM, right? The huge channels can charge much higher CPM. But if you just start out, you're working with the average bottom, you know, YouTube CPM, uh, let's say you get 1,000 views or 5,000 views or something, so you can add that up. But YouTube's taking a cut, a large cut, you know, uh, in the case of the standard... When you say a large cut out of 100% of the finance, like let's say Coca-Cola gives a dollar to the YouTube channel. YouTube takes, I think it's 45. 45 and the artist makes... Hold on. So YouTube takes 45. What you have left, the network, if you're signed with the network, and the artist share that. And at the time, and it's still, still, you know, still stands... Um, it's definitely in the artist or the channel, the talent's favor. So the basic kind of just network deal at the time was like a 70-30 split. 70 to the talent, 30 to the network. So 70%, 70% of left, 55%. The margins are low for the network. So let's just break it down because this is really break important. Break it down. Um, so let's just take a 100% pie. Mm -hmm. Every $100, okay? Mm -hmm. The standard industry deal... 40 the industry standard deal. <laughs> Four. That would be upside down. And you have to read it. Okay, sorry. Uh, $45 goes to um, YouTube. YouTube. Out of the 55 remaining dollars, tell me how much goes to the artist and how much goes to the person, like maker or the whatever it is. That so out of the remaining $55, $38, if it's a 70-30 deal, which that was kind of the standard at the time, but... Because all the networks were competing, it was like, you know, full screen was doing an 80-20 deal to the talent, 90-10 deal to the talent. So but what the about lion's the, share what, is going to the But what talent? about the artists that just decide, you know, fuck these middlemen like Maker. I'm just going to do my own YouTube well, look, channel at, and I'll get $55 listen, out of 100 myself. At the time, at the time, we, when we would sign in channels, the CPMs were going up. We used to confidently say to channels that, uh, that we would get into our network, you'll experience an immediate earnings lift just by signing with us because a network, we have direct sales. If you're in a vertical like the moms or the car vertical and we're selling the whole like mini network, the whole vertical, uh, we could we could command higher CPMs. So time. your argument to the artist was, listen, do you want 50% of your local phone company or yeah. do you want 10% of AT&T? Pretty much, pretty much. But that all changed last year when the CPMs, the average CPM, were driven way down. They, were, you know, they should be at like 550 right now, but they're significantly lower um, because of the scale that full screen, maker, awesomeness TV experienced. Uh, we were partnering channels because this time last year or a year and a half, maybe there were 35,000 monetized partners on YouTube with the pre-roll ads, which is where you make the most money. Now there's, I think, over 300,000. So the YouTube sales team, and they're kind of, you know, a lot of things are going automa automated with programmatic buying and selling, placing the ads all over the, you know, but YouTube is still, you know, AdSense-based, Google AdSense-based. Uh, now they're placing th those ads across much bigger inventory. So the CPMs went down. That in conjunction with uh, you know, India and Korea and all these, uh, you know, far e Asian countries uh, leapfrogging over the PC and going right to 3G and 4G devices and watching YouTube videos. The, the views coming out of Asia now are insane, except the CPMs are much lower there. So with the research you've done, you know, for instance, like we, we going full circle with Dane Cook, when he released his first album, okay, 
I believe 92 or 93 percent of the album or the uh, the disc was bought on a physical buy in a store. By the time of his last greatest hits album, which I believe came out in 2010, it had reversed 8% physical, 92% digital. So in the advertising world, take us through 2005 when, when YouTube starts. Advertising is about probably the same, 8% digital, 92% in networks. Now what is it? It's, it's, I mean, there's infographics that you look at and you're like, holy crap, it was here and it's just going. And so it's CPM, reversing as well. And the, the new head of maker in On Christ, and I, I believe, you know, I, I think he's correct in saying that because this time last year, a year and a half ago, the online video CPMs, especially YouTube, were probably 120th of what they are on television. Now, uh, not YouTube, because YouTube's, the CPMs were driven down by those reasons I stated earlier, and Google doesn't mind. They want to be the most economical for people, right? But the other uh, video platforms, AOL, Yahoo, and even your own video player, if you're driving traffic to it, you can charge much higher CPMs, and it's like half. So it went from like 120th of TV you know, advertising prices to half, and I think within two years, they're going to achieve parity. But realize that you know, this is all happening at the same time the mediums are converging. Right, they are they are converging. It's going to be, I think, less than two years when my mom is flipping through her plasma, NBC, CNN, epic rap battles of history, and she's not going to know nor care whether what's broadcast or digital. And you know, we're going to be watching. You know, it's the, t- the whole TV everywhere thing is kind of taking off. We're going to be watching them on any device. The CPMs are going to be a little different on certain devices, but. Uh, you know, it's moving so fast. So much money is moving from TV advertising online and the CPMs of online video are increasing at a rate. I mean, this stat blew me away that by, I think it was either Pew or Comscore, someone released, someone I I follow and trust released a stat that said by the year 2017, time spent on online video viewing will, will be bigger or outnumber time spent on social media in general. Time spent on Facebook, time spent on Vine, time spent on Twitter. So just watching online video, and that includes everything. Yes, it's the House of Cards or the originals that Netflix and Hulu and everyone's doing. Yes, it'll be some like TV stuff that actually moved online. But you know, if you if you look at you know, especially the uh, the most active online video viewers, which is this kind of millennials and younger generation, they still they are not watching TV. They are watching short form online video from talent that they discovered, talent that they feel, you know, that's not, that's not, it's a lean forward experience for them. It's not talent that a studio is saying like, you know, here's, here's going to be a new star, right? I mean, the kids, the kids don't even go to movies. They'll go to superhero movies, tentpole movies, but they're all about watching online video. And Brian Robbins, who started Awesomeness TV, freaking genius, love the man, started off as an actor, yeah, right? Yeah, started off as class, an actor, yeah. started producing television and film and and, and that's uh, why when a, Google amazing company and has branched off into directing and producing yeah. and just incredible oh, he's, stuff. He's, always a visionary. He's an inspiration. And there should someone better start writing a biography on the man because he will. He's going to be one of those people. He's going to be you know uh, Samuel Goldwyn of this new media era. And that's why you know Google made a really good bet on him. You know they funded Awesomeness TV in the yeah. beginning. And what he's been able to accomplish is nothing short of amazing. There was, wait, there was, oh. So the story that when he saw the light, it was like two years ago, two and a half years ago, maybe three, where 
you know, he, he, was, he was doing fine in the industry, right? But he goes home, and he, the way he tells it, his two boys were sitting on the couch on their tablet watching YouTube videos with the plasma on in the back on TV, and they weren't paying, you know, attention to it at all. And then it, it, it hit him, and he's looking at the, you know, he's looking uh, over their shoulder at the couch, looking at what they're watching, and it was a YouTube star at the time named Fred, the little kid with the high squeaky voice. And he just said to them, hey, would you guys want to go see a movie with starring that guy? And they turned around, they were like, right now? What do you mean? Yeah, we'll, we'll go right now. And that's when he was like, wow. So he, smart guy, I mean, he went, you know, I could see uh, Fred was uh, represented by The Collective at, at that uh -huh. point. And he made the deal f to put Fred on Nickelodeon, uh, the movie and the TV show, huge in huge success. He was the, one of the first people to actually take a YouTube star and, uh, and, and not only create new IP, you know, off YouTube, but, you know, expand the brand. And so uh, before we get into your gig now and go into the final roundup, one of the things that I don't understand, and I'm sure most of our audience doesn't understand, is like sometimes you'll go on a video and there'll be like um, a 30-second ad and there's no way to skip it. <laughs> sometimes you go on a video. Why is that? There's Bill? a 15-second ad. There's yeah, no yeah, way to skip it. Yeah, sometimes yeah. you go on, there's a 10-second ad. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you go on, the ad goes on, and it's like a three- to five-minute ad, but mm -hmm. after 10 seconds or five seconds, you can press a button that mm -hmm. says skip ad. Right. There's a number. And so what, why is it that some places are just locked into like a 30-second thing, like a CNN? You go on CNN, you can't get away from it. You have right, to watch the 30-second. Right. And, and then other places, you're, you're in again. and you can't do it. Why isn't there a thing where there isn't just like the Pepsi logo on a Chiron at the bottom corner, like a network logo, and we forget forget all this crap. Right, you're gonna see it. You're gonna see more and, and more. So, but what? Who decides kind of what this is and how how they do it? It's in flux, and it's all happening right now. You know, uh, Google and YouTube, uh, as far as the pre-roll ads, and there are display. You know, the little ones you can click away immediately, um, and they're trying to come up and and kind of you know uh, innovate and come up with different products that work. Right, but right now the pre-roll ads. Especially mid-roll ads actually get uh, credit for working better than, than uh, pre-roll ads because a lot of people will skip out on them. But you know, you'll notice that if, you know you go to a lot of the big channels, the big talent channels that are getting like you know 25, 50 million views a month or more, and you'll see that in a lot of those you can't skip, right? Because the advertiser's paying a higher CPM, you know, much more money to to play a real commercial beforehand. But you know, you look at some of the uh, some of the rates of the clickaways. Because a lot of people like you know they don't want to wait for a whole you know minute two minute commercial, um, so there are different essentially products you know uh, that you can do especially on YouTube, and some of those choices are via the channel themselves. So in your your own dashboard for your channel it, within YouTube, you can decide not to monetize at all, not to put any ads. You can decide to put ads in different places, right? If you do a Google Hangout, uh, which becomes it's a live stream, it becomes a video after after the fact gets uploaded and it's an hour long. You can go place in five ads wherever you want and they can be different kinds of ads you know um, and also if you're with a network and there's a direct sales thing going on sometimes the talent the channel doesn't even know what kind of ads they're placing because you know Toyota's buying out this whole vertical for three months but it's you know we got, we got a really great deal and it's non-skippable you know true kind of commercials uh, and then you know those deals are being made as well okay so tell me how uh, you end up uh, at maker you're doing all these great things and okay. and how do you move to um, 
All right. End so. the Mall's new initiative, uh, End the Mall Beyond USA. And what is it that do you get a call? Does is there a headhunter that calls you? Had I planned, you'd have it me out. on heroin in a week. <laughs> <laughs> you had me at heroin. <laughs> um, had I planned it out, it couldn't have gone any better. And I did not plan it out. For two weeks, there was not a bidding war, but there was like this thing where I couldn't believe it because Maker had just laid off 30 people and it changed, the, uh, the leadership changed. And I believe in Maker. I have, you know, I have shares in Maker. I know it's going to continue to do well, but I guess I was ready for the, the new adventure. But they made it hard for me to leave. And, and when they came back and actually bested the deal, so, the, so best of the deal that Endemol made for you. No, no, you? no. I'm another about to get to the Endemol. Another competitor. Uh, uh, ma- the, you know, let's just let's just call it Maker's main competitor. Got it. Um, and then after this two week period, uh, you know, ma- the Maker deal became significantly better, where it became like then just kind of a business decision. And my wife was like, you know, they really want to want you to keep. They want to keep you. They're giving you this much more money. They gave me a VP slot. Like, why would you leave? And I was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. And I stayed for a month and. Uh, and, and it just didn't, but they, it but, didn't work out. But you, didn't work but out. you stayed for a month, but they, they re-signed you, for, presumably, for at least another year. No, here's the thing. in that They didn't industry, do a contract with no, you. No, no, there are no employment contracts in the digital space right now uh, of startups, because you're a startup. If you try to lock someone in for a year or two, but you're also trying to get a sell and get an exit, you know, it, that gets complicated with the people who are either buying or investing, right? So most of the digital companies, the, uh, especially if they're still technically startups, and Maker was, and all the other ones are, there's no such thing as an employment contract. So I stayed at Maker for a month, and let you know, it just, uh, uh, you know, Maker's changing so much, and I think for, you know, I think it's going in a really great direction. But I'm kind of like I was ready for the next adventure. So, but a I month, was, or, but a month earlier, you were excited. So, what happened stay? in 30 days? To stay? Yeah. It's not that I was excited to stay. I mean, look, I'd been there almost two, under two years. So, it was the a first. Lot of my friends. So, were the there. first time in your life you made a decision for money, and for you my wife, and you weren't, and for no, your wife, it was and the you, first time, and you weren't happy with that. I remember. I, this, I remember the last deal I signed, <laughs> which shall remain nameless, and I remember signing the contract. And like literally, I could have left at that point in time, and I signed the contract. And after I signed it, I literally fell into the fetal position. I said, <laughs> "Oh my God, I fucked up here. I shouldn't have done this because I did this for the security." And um, and now that I'm on my own again, it's so exciting and invigorating them. Mm-hmm. So you did that. Was that the first decision you ever made for? Yeah, and okay. it happened uh, in in this particular year within the, within a three month period. My wife made the first decision ever that wasn't about security or finances. It was about her own happiness in her career, and that was huge for her. And then I made the first decision that factored in my wife, or that that had to do with security and not fulfilling myself as an artiste, or like, uh, no, this will be the quickest way to fame, <laughs> or or no, this is going to have this will get me you know more fans or something. It was the first kind of security-minded decision I had made, right? So I stayed, and it's not that I regretted it. It was just like it just it didn't feel right, right? It didn't feel right. And then I resigned. I actually resigned without a net. I, I, well, you re- I you, so you resigned after they double your salary. You resign, Almost. and you don't have any place to go. You don't have another gig, right? The, now the place that had been offering you uh, a job before, I had talked to them before I resigned, and they said we hired four people to do the job we thought you were going to do. So I quit without a net, and during my two-week notice while I'm still working wow. is when 
uh, Charlie Corwin, one of the new co-chairmen of Endemol North America, who I've known for 15 years, he finally comes for the tour of Maker. And I was known to give the best tours. They're not only the most entertaining, but they're the most informative because I would go through and on the tour, this is exactly what this department does. And people walk, you know, would end my tours thinking like, wow, I could pretend to be a digital expert now too, right? So in the middle of the tour with Charlie, he's like, I have to speak to you privately. And we went off to the side and he told me what was happening with him. And he said, uh, you're my guy. And I said, I'm going to make you a very rich man. No. No. Uh, so, he, so he walks into another company's territory and basically just... <laughs> no, I told just... him I had quit. You know? Uh-huh. I mean, Michael Lambert came for the yeah. tour uh, a day before that. Sandy Kleiman came for the tour a day before that. So and the mall says, you're their guy, and you start weeping uncontrollably. Yeah, but I, uh, I had, you know, Maker had asked me to stay uh, as an exclusive consultant because I think they thought I was going to jump right to, like, the competitor, right? Uh, they asked me to stay as an exclusive consultant, which I did, and then I consulted for them, and then while this kind of other job was just waiting for me, and then once the consultancy ended off to the races and then it was like two, a week later the, the big announcement and uh, and so the big announcement comes and uh, Endemol commits 40.3 billion million dollars euros 40.3 <laughs> million it's like almost like they threw a dart at a board let's see 40 no no, no let's no, do 40.3 no. and so and so you're in charge of a division of a company of an entity right where their company has committed 40 large, real large, mm. to it. Endemol had been wanting for a while to you know, make a real foray into the digital space. Um, and you know, I'm not going to say they were, they were late to the game. You know, there's a few other ones uh, you know, who've, who've gotten in a little earlier, but in a very different way. I mean, Endemol is like all in. You could tell from not only the resources, but you know, even, uh, uh, you know, and there's over 40 offices in 40 countries, and I'd say half of them are, are now have digital divisions called Beyond. As you know, it doesn't matter who's first. Yes. It matters who's standing last. Exactly. So here's my, here's my thing. Yes, it's a significant amount of resources. Uh, they pretty much signed off on my plan when it was five pages. It is, pages. It is now 55 pages, depending on I've the I've seen side. that plan. You've seen it, but, but you I can't have, tweet about it. I, I, I've seen it, and actually... I was at a table with you at the Soho House, and uh, which is a, a crazy place if you've never been there He's before. Our secrets out. This is how um, deals and get so done. And so, literally, like I'm sitting there, and he leaves the table with his wipe, and on his his computer laptop is sitting next to me with this 55-page plan with no brads or anything holding it together. It's just loose paperwork. It's open. It's right in front of me. And this is where I was. I don't know what it was. My mom or whatever. I did something that very few people would ever do when they had the keys to the fucking wow. kingdom in front of them. Wow. I reached down to take that. Here I am sharing with you. I reached down to take that proposal and all those pages, and I lifted it up in my hand, and I looked up, and I turned it over, and I put it back on your computer. Wow. Face down, because you know, I thought... It's, the plan's kind of famous now, and I've never. the reason it's in... I can show it to you. <laughs> the reason I still carry it around like this because it's not online. It's never been sent out uh, because the people who get to see it are either potential digital dream team members that I would hire or, or people that we would get in business with. And you came through a trusted source, a trusted friend. And he, want, and, and he, wanted, and to show it to me, he wanted to show it to me at the table. And honestly, the reason why I didn't read it at the table 
was because of the Soho house. You, you, if you've been there, it's like there's people. It's like a fuck. It's like he a monkey cage. There's celebrities walking by. There's people then. standing. There's people hanging. Out, there's people looking all down on everything you're doing. And I felt like I didn't want to violate your uh, trust or your privacy. And so I knew that I would get to share that at a time. So he tells you you're the, the guy. Forty point three million. You were talking about how they come up with that number. They want to be. No, in the I mean that is, it is a very specific number for specific reasons, right? A lot of you know pregame homework was done. How are we? How are we going to do this? My plan, and you know all the other uh, in, international offices have their plan, and then you know there's a commercial board, and we're you know we're all getting on the same page first, right? And this is how much it's going to cost. No, so but 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 basically it's zero zero. There's like Literally, uh, there's nothing. Right. You're starting from scratch with in, all in, the, yeah, in, in that space and all the knowledge you have of all the things. You don't have anything as you start. And so in your mind, when you sit alone with yourself and your own thoughts, what are the keys in this first year, big year coming up, 2014, that's the initiatives that you think are going to be the steps, just like you talked about the steps in the relationship that make a relationship successful. You as the president of this new venture, you never fail. There's nothing about anything you've ever done that's failed. So you're in a situation where you're going on this, you don't want to fail. What are the keys to your success in this new venture? How is it going to come about to, at the end of 2014 you're going to be in a situation where people are going to say, he did it. Right. He exceeded all expectations. Yes. He blew us the fuck away. He created yep. holy shit moments. Yes, he took audience away from the competitors, and the audience share is now right. coming on our side. Yeah. Within 18 months or, or, or two years, my goal is to make Endemol one of, if not the first global traditional media companies to actually, overuse a word, disrupt the digital world. And with the amount of resources that they're giving us, and now that we're coming at it from the other end, because a lot of the independent MCNs, like the makers and so forth, they truly wanted to be the ones to bridge the gap between YouTube and television, right? Collective did it a few times with Fred and Annoying Orange and Video Game High School. Nerdist, Chris Hardwick did it a few times, you know, took IP from YouTube and brought it to TV. But no MCN's really done it. We're not even calling what we're building over there an MCN, a PCN, a premium channel network, right? But now that we're coming from the other end, you know, the world's largest production company, one of the biggest TV producers and distributors, and they've also do, you know, they do a lot of reality game, but they do scripted now, which is awesome. They're making in, uh, feature films in various territories. Now that we're coming at it from the other end, uh, I think this convergence we're talking about, like we're going to be a big part of this convergence. So my goal is to make Endemol uh, considered a leader in the digital space, you know, with the, also within that period. And I'm doing that through building what the press has been calling a, a digital dream team. It's because I have a lot of uh, contacts, not just in Hollywood, but especially in the digital space now in Silicon Beach, Hollywood, right? So wonderful, amazing people are coming on board to be a part of the digital dream team. The other, the other kind of strategy is to create a digital brain trust through some of my you know, investments and strategic partnerships so that you know, in the digital brain trust, there's these other you know, digital companies and digital websites, a part of it, so that as long as the over 7,000 you know, worldwide Endemol employees are paying attention you know, within a year or, or even less, 
they too can be considered ex leaders, or I'm sorry, just you know, experts in the digital space, right? So that is, uh, that is the goal. And so far, so good. We're going to, if there are three things I'm going to concentrate on with this kind of amount of resources, and look, very soon there's going to be, like, we're going to be announcing a major, a major deal every week. I teed up a lot before, uh, uh, you know, the announcement exactly, you know. Um, but, uh, and thank God, because once the, <laughs> once the news hit, it's like, you know, it's getting overwhelming. All the good, but, and all the incoming is good. When I was making little rinky-dink indie films, it took me a year to find the right script that I would devote two years of my life to and then try to convince people to do for no money. But I was good at that, right? And now I have now all this money. people are trying to convince you. And people are convincing me. But the incoming, a lot of it's really good. One of the hardest problems I have is kind of paring down the good, the, good, the good opportunities, the good choices. The other thing I have is that everyone sees dollar signs in their eyes because they read about how much and they know it's end them all. I actually had uh, you know, a couple of people, they pitched me eight months at Maker and the budget was one thing and now it's ballooned to five times that budget. And I'm like, well, how did it balloon so much? It's still the same. They're like, come on, Will, you got money now. <laughs> and I'm like, that is not how this is working, right? <laughs> and in fact, I'm being on purpose overly cautious, especially in this first phase, till because this is my first time at this rodeo, but I will frickin' crack it, especially the M&A part, you know, so I'm being overly cautious. I'm, I'm apologizing to friends and, and colleagues in advance that, look, you know, I'm the hardest guy to get money out of right now in Hollywood for those reasons. I will not be ousted in a year. <laughs> you know, I want to leave a legacy where the digital dream team members, it's an it's a environment of promotion, right? I'm on a five-year retirement plan. If I can get it done earlier, I will. So I think... I think it's going to be about scale, and we can scale quickly. I think it's going to be about you know M and A, you know, making the right deals and investments because you know. Uh, uh, Explain the M and A again. Well, mergers, these? mergers and acquisitions. I think you're going to see a lot, a lot of consolidation uh, in this space soon. I think all the big guys are coming in. A lot of them have already invested in the independent MCNs. To me, that was like them getting their feet wet, learning the business. But they're all coming in. Um, uh, and we're going to be doing a lot of that. I mean, traditionally, I think there's 90 some odd companies under the Endemol umbrella. I'd say, you know, and this is probably not entirely accurate, but I'd say like a good 75% of those companies are via acquisitions, you know, of, of top insanely profitable television production companies that, you know, Endemol acquired, right? So we're doing a little bit of that, you know, in different, uh, in different areas of the digital space, not just MCN, uh, but then IP, original original content, you know, uh, we're going to be developing a lot of digital originals and that's going to be, you know, I think on those three areas, <clears throat> we're going to make a lot of headway really, really fast. Great. All right. Let's finish up here with a few weird and crazy questions for you. Oh, First geez. question, truth, truth serum in your veins. Oh, ask me any question. I'll tell you the truth. Barry Katz, go. Tell me about your biggest failure or disappointment in your career. Um, Biggest failure or disappointment? There were a few like uh, opportunities as an actor uh, that I I knew I let slip away by you know for stupid reasons that I that I regretted. I had a lot you know I had a, you know after I started kind of getting a name in the cult world and then the indie film world, uh, I had I had some opportunities that I let slip away that you know. But again, I don't. I really don't have any regrets because you learn from them, right? And if, if they had happened, would I be sitting here? And I freaking love my life. I love where it's going. So, all right, so disappointments, so that's regrets. No regrets. I wish, you know, I wish I would have embraced YouTube earlier. You know, in 2005, 2006, I think as talent, you know, I might have been able to make some money as talent. Disappointments, 
you know, people have disappointed me through the years. You know, in, in Hollywood, you know, they're, uh, what do they say? Don't be desperate, don't be boring, and don't be a liar. Hollywood hates a liar because there's so many of them, right? Everyone's like, oh, I got this person packaged to my movie, you know, and once, you know, once you find out someone's a liar, you're, you're like done with them, right? And I'm a Virgo, and I, uh, I go to great lengths to not lie. And, and you know, Virgos that are known, uh, there's a study done out of all the astrological signs, we tell the fewest lies, but I lived in an ashram, I lived by a moral code. So I'll be vague as hell. <laughs> People will be like, why are you being so diplomatic? And like, you're smart, and I'll give you enough information, just don't make me say it, you know? But because of that, uh, I give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I've had to read books to, to tell how other people are, uh, if other people are lying. So I've been disappointed by, by people, you know, a, a few main people throughout my life and career who I've forgiven and I learned a lot, you know. And in Hollywood, you know, it's, um, it can be real difficult if, uh, if, if people burn you, you know. Absolutely. What's your proudest moment professionally? Probably, uh, probably uh, getting finally to the prisnit level. Um, I'm a, I, I, without sounding like a megalomaniacal freak, which you probably already think I am, um, there's, there's a number of things I'm proud about. I'm the first digital star, first hermaphrodite serial killer in a movie, uh, one of the only Westerners to actually produce and work and live in Bollywood. Um, uh, I, you know, people, you know, considered me one of the greatest stuntmen, especially working in the, in the indie era, and I was proud of that, you know. I've been proud of a lot, but it's, uh, and I, you know, I've lived nine lives, I've had nine careers, and this is just the next one, and, uh, you know, I'm going to kill it uh, for the next few years, and then, then who knows? Who knows what's next? Well, I know you will. So, last question. What advice do you have for any young person anywhere in the world that has like a dollar and a dream right. to get to the place where you are right now as the president of a venture of this nature? And then secondly, what advice do you have for a young artist anywhere in the world of what it takes to get to the next level as a person in front of the camera to get to the point okay. where you can make magic happen? Okay. Firstly, I would say... Um, <clears throat> decide on your goals and start as, as, as early as you can. If you have, if you have, you know, if you're eight or you're 18 and you're like, yeah, I'd really, you know, I, I think, I think I want to do this. And it happens to be in the entertainment industry. Start as soon as possible. The tools are there, right? Uh, but you have to believe in yourself. And that I think is, is probably the, the greatest one. I, I, anyone who's ever made it to A-list level, I don't care if they say in an interview, no, I never really thought I was gonna get here. Bull effing shit. Morning, noon, and night, they were thinking about it. They were envisioning it. And when they saw that, they saw themselves succeeding. You heard about Jim Carrey, right? He used to go up to the top of Nichols Canyon. He would just sit there with his arms open for an hour or two and just imagine it all coming to him. Now this is where you think I'm fruity and metaphysical, but it's like magic and it's a universal law. So you have to believe in yourself. It's more more important than anything else. I would read lots of biographies of people, uh, the careers of people you want to emulate, because then you know, you know exactly, you know how it can go. Um, and I would also, if if you're a performer, you know, uh, start online. I tell people, you know, definitely start online because, or a musician, you know. I think I think never again will any band or, or singer songwriter, or solo artist, or, or rap group ever get a real worldwide or North American tour who isn't first big online. Gone is uh, is up and down, you know, the Eastern Seaboard working the clubs, and probably the same thing with comedy. You yep. know what I mean? Same thing with comedy. It's like if you start to get big online, you can fill up those fill up those clubs, right? So. Um, 
Angela Johnson is an example. She had a five-minute YouTube video on a nail salon bit that she had, and she was selling yeah. out comedy clubs immediately. Totally, totally. So I think that's that's really important. So if you want to be an actor, uh, you're not just an actor. You are your own manager, your own agent. Learn how to shoot and edit, how to do your own music. Learn how to you know, not only act, but perform, sing, and dance, because this, this is that era. I mean, it's like, it's the era of the creative generalist, generalist to be able to do specific things well, right? An expert generalist, because no one else is gonna do it for you now. And no, I promise you, from this point on, no actor is going to become a huge actor, no uh, musician is gonna become a huge musician uh, that wasn't doing everything themselves first. And that's what we did at Maker. It's what I'm doing now. It's like these these incredible talent. They get big online, and they've been doing everything them you know themselves, himself or herself. And then you know they've built up an audience, and now they're being discovered. And a company like ours or Maker, whoever can say, here, here's a production deal for you. You, we give you a director, we give you a producer, we give you a team. You can just be, you know, just do what you want to now. Be the creative, and that's an exciting time. You know, there's no reason to not start now. Wow. Will Keenan, you are a fucking force of nature. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I've had an amazing time. This Likewise. has been so inspirational. Thank you so much for Woo! coming. Thank you, Barry. Right. Oh, Barry, we're going to have our besties now, Barry. He's in my lap, and now we're going to drink vodka and <laughs> realize. Where's the vodka? All right, who else, who else? Come on, we're sleeping in a pile tonight. All right, <laughs> this is fantastic. You've uh, been listening to another episode of Industry Standard <laughs> with me, Barry Katz, as usual. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, F tell you. all your friends, please. <laughs> Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same you pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. <laughs>